Lord, we come to you this morning in a place of bowing to you in humility. You are the God of the universe. We are your creation. And far be it for us this morning to be under your word and in the presence of your spirit to leave with just information. We don't want to be gathering information today. We want to be transformed by your word. So, Lord, we pray that together today. We ask that your word would transform us and continue to shape us into the image of Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen. America is the land of the free, right? It's what we're known for around the world. Yeah. That's right, that's right. 243 years of freedom. This is America. We love our freedom. Sarah, we breathe, right? It's down deep in our DNA. It's who we are. Let me share some famous quotes from patriots past. James Bryce said this, Patriotism consists not in waving the flag, but in striving that our country shall be righteous as well as strong. Theodore Roosevelt said, I am, I am an American, free-born and free-bred, where I acknowledge no man as my superior except for his own worth or as my inferior except for his own demerit. No ranks, no, no kings, no aristocrats. We, we're all equal here. Benjamin Franklin said, where liberty dwells, there is my country. And to be sure, we have had an auspicious beginning, right? But it did not take long for human depravity and sin to bend freedom towards this idea of autonomy when it comes to God and his ways. We've got a skewed idea of what freedom is. And we see the fruit of this all around us every day, don't we? I mean, the most wretched and debauched acts are carried out no longer just in the privacy of people's homes or bedrooms, but in our city streets and in our public libraries and in front of the local news cameras so that we see it in our homes. We see what other people are doing in in the privacy of our own homes. And and the internet, for all of the good that it brings, is a superhighway of sludge and pornography. And so the voices of a once great republic rise up and demand that these things continue unabated in the name of freedom, that our freedom demands that we have access to all these things 24-7. And I just think, how, how have we, what has shifted in our concept of freedom over 243 years? It makes you step back and say, what has our freedom wrought in our land? You see, there is a freedom from and there is a freedom to. And we fought so hard as a country, as a people, for freedom from tyranny. But once our moral framework began to erode away, we quickly began to forsake any sense of freedom to something. It's just from. And so we become lopsided. We we seek to gain freedom from cultural norms and sensitivities. Freedom from morality. Freedom from the feeling of shame, even when we're sinning, and we should feel shame. We become so focused on asserting our freedom from anything that we deem to be a restraint, including God's word and his ways, that we have forgotten what it means to be free to sacrificially love. We have forgotten what it means to be free to safeguard the weak, to be free to uphold righteousness, to be free to proclaim God's word to the lost. And you just go, how did that happen? Why did it happen? How did everything seem just to go so sideways and so wrong? 
Well, interestingly enough, and I make fun of the French a lot because, well, they're French, but it was a French historian and aristocrat of all people who's reported to have put his finger on the problem and to have done it before the problem ever actually manifested itself in our nation's history. So a French historian, aristocrat, maybe a little bit of a prophet. His name is Alexis de Tocqueville. And this is what Alexis de Tocqueville said. He said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, but it was not there. In her rich mines and in her vast world commerce, and it was not there. He sought for the greatness and genius of America in her democratic Congress and her matchless constitution. And Alexis de Tocqueville says, it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. He tied our greatness and the triumph of freedom and human rights and equality to morality, to righteousness, rightness. And this is the truth of the matter. But then in some regards, freedom as a thing unto itself for its own sake can actually be a detriment to human flourishing. Ooh, Our American ears are like, what did he just say? Freedom can be a detriment to human flourishing? As long as our primary view of freedom is a freedom from only, we will walk in a deficiency of what God intends for us as people made in his image. And this is precisely what Paul speaks to in the issue of freedom here in Galatians. Uh, Paul uses the word freedom 28 times in his letters to the churches. Um, clearly uh, is important to Paul. Ten times in this epistle to Galatians alone, he uses the word freedom. So we know that Paul, uh, inspired by the Spirit, his words inspired by the Spirit, so we can deduce then that freedom rightly understood is important to God as well. So let's pick up in in chapter 5 this morning. The text is chapter 5 of Galatians, verses 1 to 15. Let's look at that together. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. Paul has a great, wicked sense of humor. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. 
For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Okay, let's go back and unpack this. Look at verses one, and, 1, 2, and 3. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. This is the summary of Paul's argument to this point. And and Christians have been set free by Christ. So Paul says we are to stand firm in this freedom and not revert back to being in the place of slavery. And so the context, I think we need to back up and get a little context in the Roman Empire, because in our study of the book of Galatians, I have repeatedly mentioned this group called the Judaizers, and they were that group of so-called Christian leaders who came from a Jewish background and who claimed to represent the apostles in Jerusalem. They were influencing the young Galatian believers, nearly all of whom were Gentiles, non-Jews, to become circumcised which is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the way you become Jewish if you're a male. And and thus to come under the law of Moses and live under the law of Moses as a means of being pleasing to God. And every time I have mentioned the Judaizers in this series in Galatians, it has been to criticize them. But I'm going to break stride this morning and actually say a good word on their behalf. I think we'll understand the Judaizers a little bit better if we get a contextual image of the condition of the Roman Empire at this time. So let's just back out to the Google Earth 30,000 foot view and and look at this. Um, Although we like to talk about the moral decline of Western civilization in the 21st century, and that's a real thing, um, hard for us to really understand that it was worse in Paul's day. It was much worse. Uh, Hard for us to grasp the moral degradation of the Greeks and Romans. Uh, Regarding sexual ethics, it was a period of lawless chaos. One writer describes it as, quote, an age when shame seems to have vanished from the earth. When people just have no shame at all. The famous orator Demosthenes declared, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for day-to-day needs of the body, and we have wives in order to produce children legitimately to have trustworthy, trustworthy guardians over our homes. So full-on acknowledgement, mistresses for pleasure, concubines for day-to-day needs, wives to produce children. And almost every Greek figure had a mistress, including Alexander the Great, Aristotle, Plato, Pericles, Sophocles. Uh, Seneca commented that chastity is simply proof of ugliness. In other words, being faithful to your spouse meant that you were too ugly to have an affair. Um, that was their view of this. So he, he also added that innocence is not only rare, it's non-existent in our day. Modesty was unknown. In fact, the saying was, the greater the infamy, the wilder the delight. That was the Roman historian Tacitus. The the greater the infamy, the worse the sin, the wilder the delight, the more pleasure there would be. And so homosexuality was found in every layer of society from the highest to the lowest. Evidently, Plato and Socrates both practiced this perversion. Historians tell us that 14 of the 15 first Roman emperors were homosexual, including Julius Caesar. Historian William Barclay offered offers this summary. He says, it's been said that the the chastity, sexual purity, 
was the one completely new virtue which Christianity introduced to the pagan world at that time. They just, they just didn't know what to do with that. They're like, you guys don't have sex with everybody? You save yourselves from marriage? What? And so it's against that backdrop that we need to judge the Judaizers, knowing the immorality of Roman Greece. They thought the only way to combat that social reality was with rules, rules, and more rules. And their diagnosis about the immorality was correct, but their prescription for how to deal with it was totally wrong. Totally wrong. Because bondage to law can never set people free from sin. They're already in bondage to sin, right? They're already in bondage. You can't give them more bondage to make them free. And so freedom, uh, it's only the grace of Christ that makes us free. Freedom from sin and death. Freedom from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin. Freedom from the shame of sin and the power of sin. In fact, Paul would go so far as to say in Colossians 1, he says, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness. It's like he backed the moving truck up to Satan's house where you were kept in the basement and brought you out with your stuff. And, and, he says, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. So even like the, 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 the base of operations, the, the center of your life, where you live and, 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 and just where you are, you know, has, has shifted from where you were. It's a total change, total change. Paul goes on in Galatians 5 in verse 4, he says, you were severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So the slavery from which Christ has freed us is a slavery to the law, specifically trying to be justified by keeping the law. And we talked at length last Sunday about how this refers to trying to earn God's acceptance. We try to, we try to earn it by doing good things for the Lord and, and working for our salvation. And, and this is slavery because it's doomed to defeat. You can never do enough. You're constantly having to do more and more. And so to keep the law, you have to keep all of the law or none of it at all. That's what James chapter 2 verse 10 says. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has broken the whole thing. So it's an all or nothing deal, right? God's law was never given as the means of earning God's acceptance. It was given, Romans 7 says, to show us just how far short we fall of God's perfect standard of righteousness. To show us how impossible it is to earn God's acceptance. So when you simply put your faith in Jesus, he justifies you. He declares you to be not guilty. And now you're forever free from God's condemnation. And it has nothing to do with you becoming righteous in your strength and your behavior. It's predicated on his death and his resurrection. And Jesus paid the full penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. It's why Paul says we, we eagerly await the hope of righteousness. And Hebrews 11.1, 1, um, the writer of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things that we're hoping for and the conviction of things that we can't see. We, we can't see what's coming. We, we have faith that we're going to receive righteousness and a home with God and all these amazing things, but we can't see it, so we hope for it. But hope doesn't mean 
we desire some uncertain future outcome. It's like, well, I hope that that's going to happen, but I don't really, I don't really know if it's going to happen. That's not hope. Hope means confidence in a certain future outcome. We're certain about it. What does the defini- definition say? Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's assurance of what we hope for. That's what faith is. It's assurance. It's the conviction of things that we can't see. I can't see it, but I am convinced in my heart that heaven is real and that we'll spend eternity with God. I'm convinced, right? So Jesus has paid for all our sins, and for that reason we can be confident that when we stand at the judgment, we'll be declared to be righteous by God, even if we still struggle with sin in our lives. Because we're being transformed. We're in the process. As long as your heart is beating, you're you're filling your lungs with air, you are in process. So let that be a freeing thing for you, right? Some of us are aggravated. It's like, I want to have arrived at righteousness. If you did, we would not like you. Because your righteousness would continue to point to our unrighteousness and we'd be like, go away, right? So praise God that we're all in process and there's no pressure for you to have arrived. When you die, you'll be glorified, okay? And none of us who are left here will have to deal with you anymore. You'll be with Jesus. And that's a good thing. So, and I'm speaking autobiographically, okay? Verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from God. He says, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view. And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It's like, just, if you want to keep the law, just go all the way. Just a Lorena Bobbitt, just be done with it. Running well, you were running well. But the persuasion, this, this leading you to turn, to persuade you to follow the law, that's not from God. And then, and then he uses the term leaven, which is a very Jewish idiom, right? Because leaven is symbolic of sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You don't have to use like a cup of leaven to make a loaf of bread. You'd have a bread like six feet tall and like, it'd be crazy. You just need a little bit and it permeates the whole lump of dough. And he says, you don't, there's just a whole lot of sin doesn't have to come into the church for it to, to lead people astray. Just, just a little bit of wrong doctrine, wrong thinking, uh, false gospel will, will start to permeate the whole. And so you've got to be on guard against that. Paul has pretty strong words in terms of the penalty of those who are leading the Galatians astray. And circumcision in this setting, more than just a minor hygienic surgery, is the mark of the Abrahamic covenant, right? And so, by the way, did you know medically, just as an aside, only in the last hundred years or so has modern science caught up with God in this, but God prescribed circumcision for the male children on the eighth day. And just in the last, I don't know, 75 to 100 years, we discovered that the vitamin K production in babies is at its peak in little boys on day eight. And so there's minimum blood, minimum bleeding on day eight. And he's just like, how cool is that? How cool is God in that? He knew that. We didn't know that. We just caught up to him about 6,000 years later. So um, circumcision signifies a commitment to earn God's acceptance by keeping the law. And Paul says, look, that's going back into slavery after having been set free from slavery. He says it's a falling from grace because it's saying, I can earn God's acceptance. I don't need his grace. 
He says it's being severed from Christ because that's saying, I don't need to be connected to Christ and his death for my sins. I can stand in my own righteousness before God. And so Paul reminds the Galatians that this puts them back under obligation to keep God's law perfectly, which is to put them back under slavery. So he goes on, he wraps up here. He says, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So the call is to freedom, not just freedom from, but freedom to, right, to worship, to love, to call one another to righteousness. It's a freedom to love. And I love the way Paul says it to Titus in Titus chapter 2. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And he says that same grace that's appeared is training us, that's freedom, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now now listen to the language, to, 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 and then from. He says that righteousness that God has brought into the world through Jesus is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think everybody in the American church is like, oh, righteousness, I'm uh, renounced ungodliness, and then we're zealous for good works. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Zealous for good works? You want me to do ministry? I'm a consumer of religious goods and services. I don't do ministry. Wrong church. Wrong church. Yeah, so, so I lost my place. I, I shouldn't ad lib. I shouldn't just go off the cuff like that. Like, where am I in my notes now? Who are waiting for the blessed hope, appearing for the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And, and then Paul says to Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let nobody disregard you. So don't miss that. This is an admonition from the apostle to the church and it's applicable to us. So where there's an abuse of freedom, where there's an abuse of freedom, um, you can count on a rebuke. And I should count on a rebuke. And, and where, there's, where there's struggling with sin, because we've, gotten ourselves, we've given ourselves freedom to dabble in sin, um, there ought to be some exhortation from people in the body of Christ. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in chapter four about expressing concern for one another. That's a right and good and God-honoring thing to do. And so I'll just say again that this is an important component of what it means to be the body of Christ. Um, And Paul says plainly here that should not be disregarded, especially when those in pastoral shepherding roles express concern. And um, I just am so glad I haven't run into that with anybody uh, in this church to this point. So... Thank you guys for being humble. As we consider how these scriptures apply to our lives, um, I just—I guess this morning I just was thinking there are five truths or five statements that summarize and kind of give us handholds for what it means to walk in the freedom that Christ has secured for us. And so I'll just share these five with you this morning as we wrap up. Uh, number one, 
people have been searching for true and lasting freedom for thousands of years. It is the, the heartbeat of humanity. It is the, the drive of every person to find freedom. Uh, even people who can't articulate and don't know what it is they're searching for, they're searching for freedom from sin. And at the heart of the Christian gospel is the strange truth that real freedom is found only in giving up everything that secular culture touts as freedom. Because they've got the definition wrong. We're so convinced by the world around us that freedom means total autonomy and a release from all rules and regulations that we rarely are able to see the real bondage that sin brings. You're actually in bondage. And the alcoholic and the drug addict will praise his or her freedom to do whatever they want. I'm free to do whatever I want. But in the same breath, lament that they can't stop their own addiction. They're not free. Freedom is more than simply being able to do whatever you want to do. But it's this misunderstanding of the nature of true freedom that keeps most of humanity from finding freedom. We've been lied to. We've been deceived. So people have searched for freedom for thousands of years. And then here's number two. Satan lied when he promised us freedom from God and the one rule that governed humanity. And instead he gave us bondage to sin and death. Instead, he delighted to deceive us. Our first parents believed that lie in the garden that we could become like God. We would be free from his restrictions, free from his rules, totally autonomous. And at the same time, I mean, there was one rule. There was, can you imagine a world where there was only one rule? I mean, I, I've been a lifeguard. My kids have been lifeguards. There are rules at the pool, right? Have you ever had to fish a duty diaper out of the pool? I have. Not fun. You got know, to close down the pool. You got to shock the pool. You got to put a bunch of chlorine in there. There's a rule about why no babies wearing diapers are allowed, and you can't have diapers in the pool, right? There's a rule. It's a good rule. I didn't understand the rule when I was like 14, and then I got to be a lifeguard, and then I got to scoop diapers out, and I thought, that's a good rule. Right? And most rules are like that. You don't appreciate them until you're on the other side, and you have to deal with the repercussions of the breaking of the rule, and then you go, wait, that's not a bad rule. Right? So there's just one rule. And you can't even imagine a world where there was only one rule. But the deceiver whispered to humanity and we bought the lie hook, line, and sinker and and here we are thousands of years later seeing the utter devastation that is caused. And so when Satan promises freedom, what he actually gives is bondage to sin and slavery to fear because of death. So, So people have been searching for thousands of years for freedom. Satan lies when he promises freedom from God. And here's number three. God's solution to our bondage has always been Jesus. That was always the plan. The triune Godhead had set in motion the plan to provide the means of salvation for all humanity from before the creation of the world. This was, this was never the result of a scrambling urgency after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And God's like, we've got to have a staff meeting right now. What are we going to do? That was never the, it was never the plan. That was never the, the reality. This was already put in motion before God said, let there be light. This was already the plan. And the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, was already determined to go to the cross for us. I mean, that is beautiful. Knowing full well what was going to play out, Jesus was already determined to go to the cross for us. So God's solution to our bondage has always been Jesus. And then here's number four. Jesus' death and resurrection frees us from sin and death and anything that might enslave us. 
Since I am forever free from the law's condemnation, I should be asking the question, how do I use my freedom? Well, in my flesh, I want to answer the question this way. I will use my freedom to do whatever I want to do. It's like, okay, I just went back into bondage, right? Paul answers it in a very different way. Paul says here in the text, use your freedom to serve. The word serve in the Greek is doulo, and it means to serve as a slave. So that sounds really contradictory. You are free from slavery, so use your freedom to be a slave. So, But it's not a contradiction. It's actually profound wisdom because the essence of freedom is not the absence of all restraints, but rather the ability to live according to our design. Let me illustrate that point. Imagine talking to a free fish who wants to use his freedom to live outside of water. I'm a free fish. I can do what I want. What would you say to the fish? How would you counsel the fish to use his freedom? Yes, you're free to live outside the water, but if you use your freedom in this way, you'll wind up completely unfree. Read that as dead. Why? Because fish are designed to live in water, not on dry land. Yes, you're free, but free within the parameters of your design. So freedom for fish, therefore, is not freedom to live outside of water, but to live according to God's design, which by definition has restraints. You tracking with this? So God has designed human beings to live according to freedom. And so to live in the freedom that Christ has bought for us is to live according to our design as human beings. And at the very core, uh, what what does that mean? What does that design mean? At the core of who we are, it means that we are called to love and to be generous. We are called to love and be generous. And we need the power of the Spirit in us to do that because typically our stuff has such a hold on us that that only by the power of the Spirit can we actually love people and be generous to, to the people around us. And so we are created in God's image. And God is a community of persons who give themselves generously and freely to one another. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And therefore love restrains our freedom according to our design as redeemed people. We're not free to sin. We're not free to go do what we want. We're not free to trample people. We're free to walk according to what it means to be made in the image of God. So people have been searching for true and lasting freedom for thousands of years. Satan lied when he promised freedom from God and from the one rule that governed humanity. And he gave us bondage to sin and death instead. And God's solution to that bondage has always been Jesus. And it's Jesus' death and resurrection that frees us from sin and from anything that might enslave us. So here's number five. Do not return again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to that. And I don't know many Christians who've been set free from Jesus who are like, I think tomorrow I'm going to go back to being slaves, uh, being a slave again. I think I just want to go back to it. No, nobody says that. It's this slow, subtle process where we tolerate and accept certain things and compromise here. It's the slow creep of tyranny in the subtlety of compromise over time. When we come back under that tyranny, that reign of sin and, and death in our lives, it's just a slow compromise, a little bit, incremental, incrementally, just a little at a time, a little at a time. I'm going to compromise here. I'm going to let my eyes see that thing. I'm going to consume that thing. It's just it's a little bit at a time, right? Not many of us are looking to go big when it comes to sin as followers of Jesus. 
But we've got to be vigilant against sin. We're not sitting around trying to dream up the worst thing we could do and still be forgiven. If you're sitting around trying to dream up the worst thing you could do and still be forgiven, you might not understand grace and you might not know Jesus. You just need to wrestle with that. You're free from sin. You're free from death. But the flip side is that nobody drifts towards holiness. It's, it's, a, it's an intentional pursuit of God. Your default state, you do not become holy by osmosis. You cannot go to sleep tonight with the Bible on your face and wake up more holy tomorrow. You have to intentionally engage in pursuing Jesus. It's only gained by intentional pursuit and enacting the will to obey. And you're free to do that. You're now free to do that. True freedom comes by sacrifice and discipline. 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Their conviction resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and their families. Of the 56, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. 12 had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ship sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and his properties to pay his debts, and he died in poverty. Signer of, signer of the Declaration of Independence. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home as his new headquarters, and Nelson told George Washington to open fire on the Nelson home. The home was destroyed, and Nelson died bankrupt, signer of the Declaration of Independence. John Hart, driven from his wife's bedside as she lay there dying, their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and his mill were destroyed, and for over a year he lived in the forest and in caves, returning to his home only to find his wife dead and his children vanished and a few weeks later he died from exhaustion signer of the declaration of independence sacrifice and discipline and brought true freedom to a nation and it's sacrifice and discipline powered by a ferocious love that unlocked the fullness of freedom we have in jesus christ it's sacrifice and discipline well, Young adults were over not too long ago, and we were somebody's at the piano. It was Julie or somebody, and, and then we started playing show tunes, and then we were in the Greatest Showman, and everybody I, we were singing, and it was obnoxiously loud. And I was playing the piano, and I can I can chord it out and just fake it till you make it on the piano, right? And um, and, and I was thinking this week about when I was in my undergrad doing my music degree, and there was a uh, piano performance major in our department named Holly. She's pretty famous in, in classical, music, classical music circles today, but she would spend hours and hours and hours in the practice room at the piano. And she would sacrifice social activities and all these other things. And, and the rest of us were like, well, we're going over here to get burgers and do this thing. She's like, no, I'll, I got to stay in the practice room. And it's interesting that today, and I, I don't, don't know where she is in the world or what she's doing, and I couldn't pick up the phone and call her probably, but um, if we sat down at the piano together, she would be free to play Mozart and Chopin and Debussy in a way that I am not free. I'm not free to do that. I'm free to play chopsticks badly, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm free to play a few songs 
poorly and to, to muss it up as I go and just fake it, you know? She has a freedom that I don't know. To play the greats, the, the best composers in the world from memory because of all the years of discipline and sacrifice. That's the kind of freedom that we're called to. It's not freedom to do whatever we want to do. It's the freedom to to pursue the things that are most important. True freedom comes by self-control, not self-indulgence. The power to wield self-control comes by the power of the Spirit. So my question is, does he live in you this morning? Does he live in you? Are you yielding to him? See, you and I are free to love the way Jesus loves, and he delights to show us how to do that. Love is the thing that keeps our freedom on the road and between the guardrails. Like, just keep it on the road. And so have you, have you received the love of Jesus into your life by faith? Scripture says today is the day of salvation. So as we pray together, uh, if, if you need to do business with Jesus and get that issue settled, do that. And then come find me before you leave this place. Let me know. But let's, let's pray together right now.